I'm Kate Daniels. Ravi Hattasingh is a cross-culture catalyst and founder of Ravi Unites Schools, a global school network that offers teachers and students great connections across the globe. And Ravi has a great new book, Pivot, Empowering Students Today to Succeed in an Unpredictable Tomorrow. Fascinating and so applicable for these times and moving forward peacefully. Ravi Hattasingh, Good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us this morning. Good morning, Kate. Thank you for having me. I am so excited about this. I just was so amazed when I first read about you and read your bio and all the important work you're doing for for the world, for each of us. And you're doing this through education, through cultural exchange for students, uh, virtually. And all, you know, just thinking of all of that in the world that we live in right now, this COVID world, um, in a way, it seems like maybe it's perhaps playing a, a good hand for you, for us. Well, well, yeah, you know, really, it, it is. I mean, it, it's interesting because, uh, especially in education, one of the reasons why I like to. Uh, work in education. And and predominantly, I'm a keynote speaker, and my primary audiences are education leadership. And what I love about that is is that the uh, influence is exponential. You know, I could be speaking to a group of superintendents, and then maybe a few weeks later, a teacher will send me a drawing that a student wrote with a quote that I sent to a superintendent. So I can sort of track it. I went from a superintendent to a principal to a teacher all the way to the student. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, being in education is so wonderful because you really can influence and impact many people and and shape the future. And you're right. You know, know, technology is such an important part of our lives these days. And, um, you know, it's something that education has wrestled with and attempted to incorporate for personalized learning and all these things. And then COVID-19 hit and everybody had to put those thoughts into action practically overnight. So it, it has had a, a positive impact. You know, there's, there's certainly um, COVID-19 has forced us to look at some of the imperfections and, and uh, unintended consequences. Um, but, you know, it's really uh, in some ways a blessing in disguise that we've been forced as an industry to really implement a lot of these ideas that we've been talking about for a long time. And it just occurred to me as you were describing that, that what was happening is actually the title of your book. We had to pivot at this time that all of a sudden here's this pandemic and everything we did had to change. Yeah, absolutely. You know, my life has always been about pivoting. My own story has been a series of pivots from uh, music to aviation to cultural diplomacy. And, you know, when I started working on this book, it was about two years ago, and I started with the title, Pivot. And then uh, I really wrote the bulk of it while uh, being quarantined in Chile uh, from March until August of this year, because all of a sudden everybody did have to pivot. And it just uh, seemed that the the topic and the concepts were more relevant than ever. And I just had to get the book done. And, and I was it really went from it's interesting, you know, Kate, it went from something that sort of seemed like a marketing necessity as a as a keynote speaker to a true labor of love. And I just I just in the process of writing became so proud of the book and how it can help educators uh, really set the stage for empowering students today, you know, to succeed in an unpredictable tomorrow, because <laughs> certainly we've learned from this COVID experience that uh, things are quite unpredictable. 
And on the point of the book itself, it's really great. And you were saying it could have been, uh, and it is a marketing tool. However, I think just the way it's written, all the inspiration and detail and stories really is perfect for, of course, teachers, but parents who are maybe in a sort of uh, pseudo role of teacher at home with kids, having that understanding and Somehow it just makes education so much more uh, integrated that we're really in this together. Well, you know, that's my that's really the point of the book is it's for educators. And I define educators as uh, administrators, counselors, teachers and parents and, and really parents and family are probably the most important educators in any child's life. And one of the reasons why this book, you know, when I started it two years ago and was sort of being pressured by my team, you know, you got to get a book out. The reason why it took that long is because I wanted to write something that I really felt proud of. And I'm, and I'm, uh, I succeeded. At least I feel really proud of it. And uh, it seems that the readers are giving me a really great response because they are benefiting from it. They are able to implement some of these ideas. And, you know, I tell the, the stories that I've learned from my personal journey uh, and my own experiences in education. But it was interesting because in COVID, when I was in Chile, I was uh, only there for a three-week trip. It turned out to be six months because the airports closed and um, the the border was was closed and and uh, I ended up being quarantined with a family that had four kids ages uh, uh, 13, 15, 19, and 21, and it was amazing to watch this family struggle with the impact of COVID and how it affected education, and to watch the parents figure out you know how to best help their children. Uh, adapt to online school and, you know, and for the family to adapt to having the kids in the house all day, as opposed to, um, you know, going to school. And with two of them in college, it, it, it was also interesting to just see how they were adapting. So it really became so relevant and I became so passionate about it. And I, and I think, uh, I truly believe that the book reflects that, which is why I think it's having a, a powerful impact on the readers. It is just amazing. Of course, we should mention it's available now, and it really, it's what just about 150 pages, so it's not very much to read, and yet it is just, just so filled with important information, and we are all going to be the the better for it for reading it and really helping each other. Well, you know, I really wanted to make it an easy read. I mean, that's important um, because it's important information. And I think, um, you know, it's really, uh, you know, it's interesting. I was reading the preface of, of uh, Barack Obama's new book just this morning. And in that he writes, uh, that's a 700 something page book. And he writes, you know, in his preface that probably a more gifted writer could have said it in fewer words. And I think that um, that there's something to be said for that. You know, it's really important to try to convey deep and important concepts in a very manageable fashion. And so that's one of the reasons why I wanted to keep the book, uh, you know, under 200 pages. But what I also did that I think uh, really helps the reader is that I close each chapter with a series of suggested pivots or pivot points, things that they can extract out of that chapter and just implement immediately in their homes, in their workplaces, and in their classrooms. So an ideal book. Be sure to get your own copy. It's so critically important and 
ultimately beneficial. And I feel with you're, you do so much amazing work in the world, Ravi. And one of the things that you do is this, uh, uh, what, it's more than a concept, it's a reality, Ravi Unite Schools. So that, talk to us about that. I, I feel that that is really a concept of fitting into what we're living now, having to do remote learning in so many cases, but what we can really look forward to. Right, and it really it really ties into globalization and cultural competence. And you know, the way it all started is uh, I partner with a boarding school in India for the poorest of the poor. It's a pretty amazing school. You know, we take the kids out of the villages at the age of four, and we pay for their education up to their master's degree. And it's an amazing program. And then these kids are now working for Fortune 500 companies, and they're able to take care of their families and rebuild their villages with their salaries. And it's a remarkable place. And in 2010, I was there for the first time. And right after uh, I was working with these kids in India, I flew to Los Angeles to work with some foster children. And I was telling them about, I was telling them about these cool kids that I had just met in the villages of India. And they were so curious about it that I asked them if they wanted to set up a Skype, a Skype chat and meet these kids in India. And they were ecstatic about the idea. So I set it up and I didn't know what they were going to talk about. So I scripted a 30 minute dialogue well, within 10 minutes, they were off my script. 90 minutes later, they were still talking. And when they ran out of things to talk about, they started showing each other dance moves and things like that. And the whole thing ended with the kids in India beatboxing and the girls in Los Angeles dancing all in real time. And it was just, I, I was so moved by this because it was completely organic. And I did a press conference afterwards. And um, the only thing that came to my mind in that press conference was, you know, wouldn't it be amazing if we could do this with young Israelis and young Palestinians so that they could bond naturally before we teach them how to hate each other? And it was this concept that turned into Ravi Unite Schools because uh, when I gave the keynote for the International Baccalaureate Organization, I had so many international schools in the audience that I really wanted to build a network with them. And that's what I did. I built a network of over 150 uh, international schools whose classrooms interact online. I usually host them. And we do just those same types of interactions where the kids write the questions. And what I, what I find so moving and wonderful about it is that they discover how much they have in common. And once they do that, they start to become genuinely curious to learn about each other's differences. And I believe this is, um, you know, certainly a great way to create cultural competence amongst youth. But if I really look at it in a big picture world, because I believe in the concept, I, I do think that that puts us on a path to world peace as well. Yes, which we have talked about and maybe it's kind of gotten a little sidelined because so much else pours forth but really at the core of it is that sense of peace of world peace that you know everything else that goes on around us n needs to filter into that and well anyway we'll get to world peace if we do that and and I can see how it could work with what you're talking about here on a global level and we just have to look here at home and we know that that's where a lot of this cultural competence and understanding needs to grow because uh, without question, we, we have a lot of divide that's going on here. We sure do, you know, and, and, uh, and we get very distracted by that. But at the same time, the younger generations, um, you know, generate the millennials who are now the parents of 
of uh, the students and they're the, they're the teachers, the incoming teachers and administrators, but also Gen Z now, the students, you know, they are so multicultural just by nature, by the, by the world that they've been brought into and by the technology that they've grown up with. They're just connected. And, you know, I have a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, optimism about the, these younger generations. And, you know, my feeling is we just, we just have to get out of their way. Uh, and not really dump our own baggage on them and allow them to just realize, uh, you know, how much they have in common with people that live on the other side of the world. And, you know, they do it through programs like Ravi Unite Schools, but they also do it through online video gaming. You know, these kids are playing games with, with friends that they may never meet, but they consider friends all around the world. And I just think that's a really remarkable, remarkable opportunity Whereas, you know, when you turn on the news today or uh, you certainly get into adult conversations amongst adults, you realize that at that level, we're so polarized uh, right now in this country. And it's it's almost it's like a dichotomy that's divided by the generations. Yes. And fortunately, the younger generation is much more inclusive and desirous of uh, seeing change and connection. Well, they are, you know, and it's interesting because of the events of this year, you know, not just COVID-19, but um, when George Floyd was killed, we really saw the the youth rise in a way that um, that the older generations thought, you know, wouldn't happen. They didn't believe that the millennials and Gen Z sort of had that in them. Uh, but, you know, we saw the baby boomers do that in Vietnam. Um, you know, we saw uh, maybe even my generation, Gen X, uh, start to look at this after 9/11 and the collapse of Wall Street in 2008. You know, there, there are all these milestones in our history where the generations have been awoken, and uh, they all of a sudden stand up for something, and we start to learn about their identity. And 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 you know, I think it's really great that to see these young kids now. I mean, look at even just our voting of how many people came out and voted this year uh, compared to previous elections, uh, regardless of which side you voted for, it's a good thing that people and uh, that the youth are getting more engaged in these types of things. Yes, and seeing the importance and the value of it at the same time. And feeling like it matters, you know, yes. feeling like they have a voice that actually matters, because that's been something that's been missing, and that's why we've we've often referred to them as being apathetic, and now they're showing us that they're not apathetic, and I think that's a very, very positive outcome of all this uh, polarization and division. And this is what we we need to nurture, and what you are uh, striving to do in this book, Pivot, uh, subtitle being, or the continuing title, Empowering Students Today to Succeed in an Unpredictable Tomorrow. And and that's so true. Everything changes so rapidly these days that it's so important to be learning, uh, I think, as you say, learn how to think and how to analyze and, and move through things. Yeah, what I, what I really say in the book is that, that school has really only one uh, obligation to a student, which is to teach a student how to learn. And that's it. Um, if we can teach students how to learn, they can learn on their own forever and be lifelong learners. And I think really that has to be the objective. And when we look at, uh, you know, the, the director of the lab on aging at Harvard Medical School says that the first person to live to 150 has already been born. 
So imagine in a lifetime that lasts that long, you know, maybe a hundred years of, of, of working and productivity, how many pivots these students are going to have to make in their lives in their professional lives and personal lives. We can't possibly give them all of the tools to do that in 12 years, 14 years, 16 years, or 20 years. We have to give them the one tool that will enable them to be successful throughout an unpredictable future. And that is the ability to pivot and the ability to pivot comes from lifelong learning. So they have to know how to learn. And right at the outset of the book, in the first chapter, you talk about these pivotal areas uh, that students need to learn and that all of us, you know, if we haven't been aware of it, to embrace this. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, there are uh, very, very important things like, you know, inspiring curiosity. It's really important that we make sure that that students are always curious and that they know and genuinely take interest in things that are outside of their comfort zone. And we can create, as I talk about in the book, opportunities in classrooms and in at home every day to give kids the confidence to step out of their comfort zone and, and be curious about things. And not only be curious, but to act on their curiosities. And that dovetails into something I talk a lot about in the book, which is the importance of teaching failure. You know, our education system is so wrapped up in achievement and grades and, you know, making sure we spend from kindergarten to 12th grade, making sure that uh, that a kid goes to college. But we really have to prepare them more uh, for life. And life is about making mistakes and failing and getting back uh, up and learning from your mistakes. You know, as uh, I always say, and many have heard educators say, fail it's an acronym for first attempt in learning. And I think that's a very, you know, intuitive way to think about the importance of allowing kids and pushing kids to the point where they fail, because that also helps build their confidence when they recover, that uh, feeds into their social emotional needs, which is a big topic that education is trying to tackle. So these kinds of things uh, are very important. And, and then, then it ties into um Critical thinking, you know, when you're curious about something and you're learning about something, you have to think critically about it uh, in order to make sure that you're understanding what you're learning. And um, in the book, I talk a lot about the importance of data triangulation, taking three points of reference and teaching students to always take three points of reference before, uh, you know, forming an opinion on any one subject matter. And you know, in the age of social media and headlines, <laughs> that's quite a challenge because we've, we've become so used to just looking at a headline and or a tweet and believing that it's true. So as I often say to my keynote audiences, if we teach data triangulation to students in everything they do, there will never be, again, anything such as fake news. And they, of course, want to embrace that. Yeah, I think I mean, it's don't so we? Important. Yeah, yes. absolutely. You know, we we really do have to encourage that um, dedication and commitment to the truth and to you know uh, accurately assessing the information that's in front of us so that we can actually do good things in the world and positive things for each other. 
Yes, absolutely. And so we, here we have this inspiration and guidance, especially during this time where, you know, we, we can see a, a lot of the downfalls, the things that, uh, the inequities that exist in our system, for one, uh, as a result of COVID and the way things have unfolded. But again, there have been very positive things, as we've touched on, and to grow from this and to really move forward, uh, because I think in this way, you know, some of the things that we've had to, in a sense, give up, but adjust to, will ultimately be so beneficial to us. And I'm thinking of, yeah. you know, not not traveling uh, every day so much that we maximize our time for one. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with that. You know, it was very interesting. The first thing that we discovered with COVID was the, um, uh, the, the disparity that that technology was creating. We thought technology would be the great equalizer, but when it came to education, we realized, oh my gosh, there are kids in um, lower socioeconomic neighborhoods that don't have broadband and can't get online to go to school. But we also discovered that there are even wealthier kids in you know the suburbs or subdivisions that uh, have broadband, but all of a sudden. Every kid in that subdivision was on four devices at the same time. The parents were working from home, and even that broadband wasn't sufficient to give every child an equal opportunity and equal access to their online schooling. So from a technology standpoint, it was very interesting to see the inefficiencies of the system, and uh, that has really helped us recognize that as we bring technology into education, that has to be fixed. But on the positive side, now we see parents more involved in their children's education perhaps than we've ever seen before because the kids are at home and the parents are at home and the parents are trying to help the kids and guide the kids and stay on top of the kids to make sure that they're getting their schooling. This level of family engagement is something that as we transition back to more traditional schooling environment, we have to find ways to keep that level of family engagement um, alive because it's so, so important that parents, this is something I, I say very specifically in the book, uh, it's so important that parents don't think that when their child turns five, they could just outsource the rest of the education of their own children to a school. A school and and a family needs to be partners in a child's education in order to successfully educate the whole child. Absolutely. Important awareness to really embrace. I think so. And I think it's it's been very difficult for parents because, you know, we live in this society that has a lot of pressure, a lot of financial pressure and um, double income families and things like that. And, and so I, I don't fault the parents for maybe taking their eye off the ball, so to speak, with their children's education. Um, but what I think COVID-19 has done is it successfully made them realize and reevaluate how important that, that is, that they're, that they're part of that, uh, that, that equation. And I think we all, as a society, need to have a better understanding of this, is how we can cooperate and, and help. And I'm thinking of parents who need child care, who, you know, don't have the school-age children and child care is not available. So there have been a lot of issues that way. But again, it, I think what we're talking about here, pivoting, is being able to, to come up with solutions of how we can do this together. You know, and the key word that you just said is together. This really has to be a community concept because uh, the 
families, there's just different, you know, socioeconomic realities from family to family. And there's certain um, types of jobs that can be done remotely and certain ones that just cannot. And, you know, the ones that cannot be done and the parents that are working and have to go to work yet, their children's not going to school. And as you mentioned, child care is not available. Uh, it takes a village to figure this out in order to make it more uh, equitable and, and to make sure that we can all function as a community. And, you know, part of what we've seen in the last year and, and certainly through the election is a uh, high degree of individualism as well. And I, I think we have to maybe ramp that back a little bit and realize that we are a community and we have to really look out for one another because, um, one, one of the things I talk about in, in the book is, you know, and when the Internet surfaced back in, you know, around the turn of the millennium, in the late 90s, early 2000s, we really transitioned from a vertical economy to a sharing economy. You know, for example, um, capital went from financial to being social. And, uh, you know, social capital is very important and who you know in our networks, things like that. And so in a sharing economy, we have to recognize that it's even more important that we look out for our neighbor because we are more integrated and more dependent on the success of others than perhaps we ever have been before. So these are in a way very simple, basic awarenesses, and yet uh, we... We have certainly strayed from it, being, you know, wanting to be like, I'm the, I'm the best. I'm, I, you know, I can do whatever I want to do, which is important. But to be able to do that together. Well, one of the things that I talk about in the book, and and you know, even prior to the book, on my website, I've had this ongoing blog every month that that talks about a lot of these concepts on on RaviUnites.com, and even parts of that went into the book, but ultimately. That uh, what you just talked about is leadership. We have to really teach students and children what leadership really is. And leadership isn't about me and uh, money and success or even influence. Leadership, in, as I define in the book, is about empowering those below you to rise above you. And I think that's really a, a key concept um, and, and sort of a um, – socially responsible concept of leadership that we really have to make sure that kids understand. Um, and, you know, when we talk about privilege, there's so much talk about uh, privilege in in, um, in our world today. And in every classroom, there are some students that have privilege. And we sort of, I don't know, we've been making people feel guilty about their privilege. Their privilege. And one of the things I talk about in the book and to my audience is, is that instead of making those with privilege feel guilty about having it, let's teach them how to use it. Let's teach them how to use it for good by making them uh, aware, more socially aware of the needs of their communities and by showing them how to use it. And four examples that I give are um, Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, Mahatma Gandhi, and Mother Teresa. They all came from privilege and they went and they used that privilege as a tool to empower those below them to rise above them. Yes, that is, again, so ideal. So there are all these just magnificent 
I'm going to say concepts, but the reality that you share with us that in a very succinct way in this wonderful book, Pivot, Empowering Students Today to Succeed in an Unpredictable Tomorrow. And we have that opportunity then to be educated and to share that and and pass it on and and build this better world, a more peaceful world. Well, absolutely. And I think what what greater goal can there be for humanity than world peace? And we can all contribute to it every day through our actions. And that's that's what some of those suggested pivots are in the book, is really showing how we can all not just contribute to our own success, but to contribute to the success of that maybe of the greater good, of that mission to live in a more peaceful world. I think it's, you know, it's so essential in it. In the cultural diplomacy work that I've done on behalf of the State Department, um, I realized that, you know, each one of us can make such a big impact. Um, the work that I do, you know, was in Iraq and Indonesia and Russia and China. And, you know, I've been had the great uh, privilege to be able to go to all these amazing places and discover that all these people that we might think are terrorists or you know, that they're just wonderful people that want world peace and, and uh, love their children and want a good education. <laughs> you know, we we all kind of want the same things in the world. And if we can recognize that in each other and work together, I don't know what stops us from achieving it. Absolutely. Yes, it is certainly achievable and we can do it. Each of us does it and we do it together. And that's where we arrive. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think our, I think our corporations and politicians and you know other people's agendas sometimes get in the way uh, rather than helping us achieve that. But we can put a lot of that aside uh, in our everyday lives and just focus on our communities and having a positive impact for the greater good. Yes. So let's do it. And to get more information about the book about Ravi, the website is. RaviUnites.com, R-R-A-V-I-U-N-I-T-E-S.com. And, of course, the book is available wherever books are sold, including Barnes & Noble and Amazon and all those great uh, retailers. Excellent. Ravi Hattisingh, it has been so great to have you. Thank you for the work that you do. You are such an inspiration. Well, thank you, Kate. I appreciate it. Thank you.